0: Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zygacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world. Globally or locally, UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics.
1: We are joined by John Beeson, who's going to take us behind the U for his journey uh, prior and getting to the University of Miami. Mr. Bees, Big Bees, appreciate you doing this. What's going on, Jay? Thanks for having me. You were good. So I'm going to start this one off a little bit different than what I've done in the past. We're going to go, I'm going to warm you up a little bit, kind of like pregame. I'm Swayze. I'm going to get you warmed up. All right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He was one of the best. So that's good comfort.
1: So you were a self-proclaimed student of the game. You've got great love for the school and you played the position that this school is known for so i'm just gonna throw names out and i want just some quick hitters from you what comes to mind first okay gotcha we're starting off big ray ray
2: intensity just a guy who played the game the way it's supposed to be played and you could tell that it mattered
1: dan morgan college football hall of fame
2: the best i think dan is the best the numbers speak for themselves uh what he was able to accomplish at the collegiate level and you know the splash that he had in the nfl Super Bowl record for tackles. Just a guy who the football god said, hey, we're not going to let you place, you know, 17 years like Ray Lewis. Uh, we're just going to give you one full year. But Dan would have went down in history as the best to do it. Michael Barrow. Uh, stoic. Leadership. Tough. Another guy who, who had a lot of passion. Studious. Just a, just a truly student of the game and the ability to make the guys around him play at a higher level. He's the glue. Rohan Marley. Ha, Rohan. We had this conversation before and, uh, you know, he claims to be the original number two, which he is. He made he made the number two look the best. Uh, Willis accomplished the most, but he he made it look the best. And I, you know, I had this conversation with him. I said, you were about a decade too soon. Uh, He would be prototype uh, if he was coming out now. He'd be a high draft pick. But he was just a little undersized for the time when the game hadn't evolved yet into the, the past happy spread offense that we have now.
1: Shaq Quarterman. Potential.
2: Uh full of it. I think if he would have played in, in my era, you know, if I was fortunate to play with four or five guys that got drafted, two first round picks and and Vilma and, and DJ Williams. And when you're so close to that type of production, it's easy to just kind of get in line and follow. They were given so much as freshmen to come in and start. That should never happen at the University of Miami, especially at that position. You should be in all of the guys that are the seniors and the juniors. And when I think about Shaq, potentially he could be as good as he wants to be. Um, and he'll realize that as he gets deeper into his pro career, but uh, he can be whatever he wants to be. He has the tools. He has the makeup. It's just being able to, to shoulder the burden of playing Mike linebacker.
1: The last one for now, Mr. Vilma, Mr. Vilma.
2: Well, it's very simple. He's the best to do it. He's the most accomplished on and off the field. And and I, I talk about when I when I say the best to do it, I mean, obviously, Ray has, you know, two, two Super Bowl rings as opposed to one. And, but Ray doesn't have a national championship. Uh, Vilma went higher in the draft. Neither one of them, I think, won the buckets. But, you know, Vilma, how he cares himself, the way he's perceived in the community, the way his colleagues uh, perceive him, uh, his academic prowess, uh, his business endeavors, he's just doing it the best. And he's a great father. So... When I think about Vilma, I just think that in totality, he's set the bar pretty high in everything.
1: All right, we could do this all day, but is there anyone that I have not mentioned that you would like to make mention of?
2: They're not under the radar, but I think the you know the other sides of the uh, Bermuda Triangle, you know, Darren. They were on. They
1: were on the list. It's a hard list. Yeah, no, I got so much other stuff I wanted to talk to. We'd be at this all day, but they, Darren Smith and Jesse Armstead are on the list.
2: Yeah, you know, when you play Mike linebacker, uh, you realize how The guys on the outside of you, if they're good, how much easier it is for your job to do your job. You know, Jesse was a guy that was back and and Michael were uh, at the same time they had injuries and they were back at the University of Miami. So I was able to kind of pick their brain. And, you know, I'm so glad that I did. I wasn't so shy to be like, man, those guys don't have time for me. But they taught me a lot about the game when I was still uh, in college. Uh, They got out there doing one on ones because they were coming back from injury. Just studs all the way across the board.
1: All right. So you, you made mention before that, you know, kind of unfair for Shaq and Pinkney and those guys, right? They came in and had to play right away. They were forced to play right. Away. They deserved to play it, but they had to play it. That was not the same situation for you. You didn't sit for two years. You were hurt your first year. Your playing time slowly progressed the way you would think it would progress at the University of Miami. Correct. At the time, I'm sure everyone wants to get on the field, but as you look back on it, did that help you? For sure. I think that you learn a lot about
2: yourself. It's the first time where any University of Miami recruit is not the guy, right? Where you had to kind of prove yourself, earn it and do with setback, right? Like you want to come in and play right away. You're you're highly touted in the nation. And then you're going to sign up to be fourth on a depth chart behind Sean Taylor, Brandon Merriweather, Marcus Maxey. I mean, just freak athletes and say, hey, you know, yeah, that's what I want to do. I'm going to go there because the level that you want to, rise to is greatness you just don't want to exist so these guys are the best you can't be in fear of the process you have to be willing to to go in believe in yourself believe in your work ethic and um when it's your time you're you're more than prepared for
1: it how much did it push you Uh, you just mentioned some of the guys you know you're trying to prove yourself against when you started off in the db room ultimately wherever you went you were competing
2: yeah, I think that for me, where I would take it as a, as a definite benefit was I was coming from a, a small private school that no one had heard of, and even though I may make the seven o'clock local news, they're talking, they're going to be talking about Frank Gore running up and down the, the field, breaking state records and county records. They're going to be talking about what's going on at Central's, you know, top ten team in the in the, in the nation, Northwestern, all those big time matchups. They're probably not going to be paying attention to the fact that that last part of Sports Extra, they were talking about Shamanah Madonna. They don't know nothing about that. You know, a little two A school. So when I came in, I got a lot of heat about being a private school kid and I was furious. I mean, I was literally steaming. It was a ongoing joke until the first day of Pats and then that all ended. So it wasn't just a level of, of intensity or how bad I wanted to prove myself. It was like, I was playing really, really hard. Like, it was life or death for me. And right away, they realized that I was about business, and they respected that. So they were like, I don't know where you guys found, found this kid. We know we got Sean Taylor from, from Gulliver, who was also a 2A school, but Sean Taylor came from Killian. So it wasn't like he was really a, a 2A guy. He was a, a big-time 6A uh, football player. But right away, um, I had to go out and, and set the tone and I think that because I was serious about my business and I didn't take any mess to say the least, the guys respected me and I was in the, the
1: in crowd right away. You were on uh, the podcast with Mr. Monroe and the All Canes guys, and just heard you speak before that you were, you know, a human missile, I think is how you described yourself. And you mentioned the intensity you played with. So where'd that come from? Why? How did your mind uh, and your, your emotions take you to that place immediately? And where did that start?
2: Yeah, whenever I asked a question as to why, For me, it purely boils down to being a champion. Unfortunately, I picked the the one sport where it takes everybody. That's what we used to say. It takes all of us. Everybody has a role, no matter how big or small, but the drive to be a champion. you know, I can watch any sporting event. I don't care if it's water polo. If it's a championship, I'm going to leave it on because at the end, I love to watch the celebration. I love to put myself in that moment, how it would feel, the emotion that I would have accomplishing something that's so difficult to do. And Because of that, I was always, always had that at the forefront. It was something that was always on my mind and it drove me. And, you know, I I realized that if I really wanted to be a champion, I had to make sacrifices that most people will not make. You have to work in a way that is probably unwise. And there's a sense of expectation when you step onto the field that you know what's about to happen. There is a, a result. You're not hoping or praying someone else you know exactly how you're going to perform because you put the work in. And I think that that was the confidence that I would take on to the field. Every time I played, I just, I felt that I deserved it more. And that's why one, I should have a successful down, but also I should be able to do enough to
1: affect the outcome of the game. So were you like that in high school, I guess, or were you like that in little league? Like were you like that prior to Miami?
2: Yeah. You know what my first year, and I'm so grateful for this, that I played a uh, little league ball. We were on a winning team and I think once you start to, you know, put those wins together, you're undefeated and everyone's telling you how great you are, you're feeling really good about yourself, not really knowing what, what it's like to lose, being in a game where you're down and, you know, you see those big lead, those big numbers on the scoreboard and Optimus ticking down and you're like, we're about to lose. I would already be in tears. Now, I wouldn't be in tears that we had lost the game, but I would just be so furious, like to the point where I just start playing harder and then more aggressive and then people he say hey, you just hitting these kids like i'm really trying to get this goal and realize you know at the early age of 10 that i didn't want to play for any other reason but to win it was never okay to lose i always took it hard and i think it's something that is important you know i can recall a story my rookie year and we, had, you know we were seven and nine and dan was injured for losing games. And I was tearing up and he was like, listen, man, let that go. Don't ever make it business. You keep that. And um, it resonated with me. And I, and I did, I knew I was playing the right way. I knew that I had purpose why I'm doing this. And it's a great separator. I mean, the ultimate differentiator between the guys who are really, really good and the great ones. I think the great ones, the difference between the two is just the ability to uh, influence a guy next year
1: to get him to to buy in and give more to. You came at a really interesting time for the University of Miami football program. There's two things that are interesting to me, John, about it. One, you came in on the back end of greatness, right? You know what I mean? Like at the the very pinnacle of, of where they were. And then Miami's been on this road to get back there right? That you were at the forefront of, so to speak. What was your recruitment like? Like, did you grow up a Miami fan? Like, was it Miami or nothing or, or was there an actual recruitment and, or because Miami was so good at that time, right? Was it the allure of the U?
2: Yeah. Well, being an inner city kid, uh, that's what we did. We played ball. We went on the streets and we played football all the time. So I found football. I didn't have a, you know, a dad that was you know telling me about history and tradition with the dolphins or, or the Canes. I just played ball. But I was also a guy reckon, who, ne- who recognized greatness and wanted to go through the process. And Miami just happened to be being in my backyard. I actually wanted to leave. You know, I, I hadn't seen the world, hadn't really left this, the state. Actually, I never left the state prior to my my uh, recruiting trips. Never been on an airplane. It was things that I knew that were out there in the world that I wanted to see. And believe it or not, Coral Gables was one of them. I didn't even know what Coral Gables was. I had never driven by the school. There was no reason to go down south for anything. I learned about Miami. I knew how great they were in high school, but I learned about the history of Miami throughout my recruiting process. And I made the decision based on things that, that mattered to me most. There was a expectation of greatness that existed. There was a sense of unity and community amongst the players, the fraternity, Uh, was like no place I had to visit to. And the history, the level of what they were able to accomplish and why they played, they play the game, how people view them as former Hurricanes at the highest level, it was a why, like, I wanna do that. I wanna be like that. And it was very simple at that point. It was more a gut, emotional feeling that I needed to be at UM. And I felt it midway through the, the second day or the end of Saturday on my recruiting visit, I was like, this is it. I was in awe it was time. And I went and rushed and tell coach Coker that I'm coming to the you. And I wasn't about, I, I didn't do the hat thing. I didn't, you know, mess with other schools. If I wasn't interested, I told you from the very beginning, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm not interested. I'm focused on winning the state championship, all of that stuff. I just was very uh, mature about how I went about it.
1: Everyone talks about the brotherhood, the mindset, the standard, the championship, the unity, all of that. It comes through in a lot of these conversations is there something specifically you remember that showcases that?
2: Like, once you come in and you start training, and especially that nucleus of coaches that won the, the 2001 uh, national championship and should have won 02, And I think collectively, they coached us extremely hard. They didn't allow us to kind of go through the motions. And typically, that starts with the strength coach. You know, most of us were in fear of whatever the workout was. We're in fear of what Swayze had prepared for us on that particular day. And I, I really, truly believe this, that when you hurt for something, when you strain for something, oh, it's so hard to let it go. It, it, is, it is so hard to let it go. And you realize that, you know, every guy who comes to UM doesn't, you know, rise to be this great player at the next level or become this high draft pick. Most of us don't. But the few that do, it was enough of them to kind of carry the, the load of how it should be and it was non-negotiable. You know there's stories of egos in the locker room where things get physical because a guy's not quite giving the, the level of work ethic that he's supposed to be. The coaches talk to you that way. It was very much a, you know, a matter of like, listen, it's championship or nothing. If you don't like it, you can get out, you can transfer to, you know, a top recruit in the country. It did not matter and I think the kids that embrace that and understand that it's your duty that you must live up to the standard that's set before you. And it's unlike any other school. People can talk about these other universities. I'm telling you, it's no different because once you get to the NFL and you're on the team with other guys who played at other major universities, they'll tell you, I was scared to go to Miami. I wanted to go to Miami. You know how many times I hear that? You know how many times you get trolled on, on Sundays or I'm sorry, Saturdays, where we're traveling to wherever, getting ready for a game on Sunday and guys are talking about what's going on in the University of Miami game. What We don't even have to be ranked and they still want to talk about Miami. They want to be a part of it so bad. They wish that they can say that they're the originators of what we know the game to be, football. I'm saying that the entertainment factor, the factor why people want to sign up and watch you play is because of the way we made the game, that we were the major brand. We were the most recognized logo in in sports in the country at at a point in time. We've done so much in, in terms of tradition being first that the game has grown so much. And it's so funny when you talk about excessive celebration, we used to say, well, don't let us do it. But we made it a 15-yard penalty. And now you look at the NFL reverting back to allowing the guys to celebrate after a a big play or a touchdown. That matters. But people don't necessarily want to give us the credit. But we were the reason why you're racing to your television before there was mainstream cable um, to see who was playing at primetime. And it was Miami. We were on more TV more than any other college. And that's a lot of pressure. And if you can just sit back as a young player for a second and realize that and be like, man, I need to be working at a rate. I need to be giving more effort at a rate that can uphold this. Because how dare you let it fall on your watch? And it, it's painful. It is something that I think about. And I tell the young kids now, I'm like, your goal here, the way you give back to the University of Miami, is to win a championship. And if you don't, you sucked. That's it. It's either gonna resonate, the kids are gonna understand, or they're just gonna do their time. And
1: you know, three, four, five years, that's it. It's just time. People these days a lot of times talk about talent. And obviously you have to be talented to play football, right? But the thing that always grabs me, if it's not if it's Santana or Clinton or you or Dan Morgan or, or whoever the guys that I've spoken to on this that that I take in is there's this intersection beyond talent of pride and work ethic. There's something that goes much deeper than talent because there's enough guys with enough pride that care. I'm doing it a certain way and you're coming with me or, or not, or it's just how they drove themselves. And if you get enough of those guys together, then you have greatness.
2: Yeah. It, there is no substitute for the guy that it matters to. That's ultimately what you want. Tom Coughlin, one of the, the greatest coaches in NFL history, and maybe the best motivator probably the sternest coach uh, just based on the little things that he wouldn't let slide. He wouldn't let anything slide. I mean, his attention to detail was, was untapped. There is no comparison. He would have a saying every single day based on whatever we needed to hear, however practice went. And he was always prepared for it. I mean, before, the night before a game, his delivery is, you know, it gives you goosebumps. If you were a true, just a, a football guy, you know, you would just respect this dude. And he would say, the will has to be greater than the skill. And think about that for a second. You know, it's a lot of guys. I mean, there's guys that go first round that have great careers that end up maybe lucking out on a on a Super Bowl champion team that really kind of coasted. And that irks me. I mean, it just, it bothers me to the point where I'm like, as good as you are and as great as people think you are from the outside looking in, man, like, how do you just exist? How do you just... Give a half effort most of the time and not allow your true skill to really shine and to go down as maybe the best to do something like Devin Hester is the, you know, the best returner ever. You know Frank Gore has a chance to be the best running back ever. And people will say stylistically this dude, that dude, but like you don't play as long, you're not as highly respected. And the things that people talk about Frank, especially in the industry, other coaches they'll say, man. I love Frank Gore because the way he picks up the blitz. There isn't a player better. There isn't a running back better. That's selflessness. That's like doing it. It's not your time. You don't got the ball. They're not throwing it to you. It's not your time to shine. No one would ever, would, would ever know that unless you put the film on and see them knock dudes out. Okay, linebackers, safeties, you know, if, it's, if, it's, if it happens to be a defensive lineman based on protection, those are the guys that it just, they care. And parents will come up to me or fans, you know, what is it? You know, why? And it's hard to put into words, but it just mattered, man. It just, it just matters. And, you know, the tears that were shed on the field at Miami based on the work with the workouts, you know, guys fighting to to stand up because we're not allowed to bend over to make their time. If you didn't make your time, we had extra, we had to run extra. So someone would go grab a guy. And if, you know, if you did not make your time, we're going to put you on front street. You're going to have to turn your shirt inside out. You know, Coach Shannon took U's off of helmets and made guys earn it before you got the U on the side of your helmet, because it kind of became this fad thing. Guys were like, man, I'm a, I'm a Miami Hurricane. What does that mean? You get a UM tattoo. Like what, but what did you do to earn it? You know, what, how did you add to the legend of the University of Miami? But you got this tattoo. You could just see it, you know, starting recruiting. You know, you might be a five-star kid and like the whole five-star stuff. Man, it bothers me. <laughs> you know i don't even know how many stars i was coming out i don't i don't know i don't care but this the blue chip spoon fed and coddled mentality is what brought the program down you start bringing in the wrong kind of guys you know sometimes you got to you got to earn it for it to matter to you if you give it to somebody you know they don't care what happens to it, anything in life right
1: there's a lot to unravel there which is the heart of the program the heart really was what made the greatness but the interest the reason why i said earlier the interesting time for you is, is you you were witnessing the unraveling that had to hurt
2: it hurt i mean you can separate yourself and say you know hey we were seven and six my my last year in miami and we're still top four on defense and the offense was close to 100 in, in the teens like almost dead last like you could say oh well it, was the- it doesn't matter No one cares about your individual ranking. It just, you had not enough guys bought in. And, you know, if you segue to where we are right now in the program, that's that missing kind of ingredient. If I I had to put my finger on it, if I was just guessing, you know, I'm not there every day. I don't know the the heartbeat. I don't know. I don't see how the guys train and how they work. I do think that, you know, they're at a crossroad right now. If you're going to have what you want. I mean, even last year, eight and one, nine, whatever it was, you're looking at the ranking you're like, well, how can we not rank higher? You know, how come there's eight one loss teams in front of us? And it was the eye test. It was how we're winning games. But I think that if you're going to be consistent at anything, the most important thing is discipline. And discipline hurts sometimes. It's a relationship that you know you need if you're smart, but
1: you hate it. Well, so that was interesting about the Tom Coughlin thing, your reverence for him, because in the media, right? The outside looking in for someone like me is well, no one would want to play for him. He's such a you know what, an old SOB and blah, blah, blah. And then you see, then to hear you say, you know, you basically love the guy.
2: Yeah, I, I think that uh when I got there, I heard stories about it. And you know, I understood before, you know, as a opponent playing in Carolina for the Carolina Panthers or talking to some big time vets that, that played for him in the beginning in Jacksonville. And it was, he was like this, he was like that dude. And I'm like, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. But there's a reason for it because the margin is so small and that's where it has to kind of be this relationship where he's dad, he's a superior, he's a disciplinarian and you're the son and you have to trust him. You have to trust that your coach is telling you that you're doing it in a way that's going to get you the championship. And that's the, that's the question, if you're a coach now, that you ask yourself, am I holding them accountable enough? Am I riding them hard enough to, one, be a champion, and two, for them to go in, into their next endeavor as young men into this world and be successful at anything? Am I doing that? That's the real question. And it's tough now because I get it. You got the transfer portal, aka the quit portal. And... Though there's guys that have benefited greatly from it, I get it. Every situation is not the best. But there's something to be said about seeing something through and fighting through the BS, the turmoil, coach unlike me, this player is better than me, I'm, he was younger than me. It's something to be said. And that's old school. And I get why they didn't allow players to transfer and, you know, they got you by the balls, but the coaches can leave and still get paid and, and backdoor you all day. So I get the necessity of it and how we've benefited from it directly in terms of bringing guys in, but you gotta be tough and understand that when something's not necessarily the way you want it, you gotta be willing to work through it and make it the way you
0: want it. Hi, Hurricane fans, Joe Zagaki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've gotta make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world. Globally or locally UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want more made easy UPS official logistics company of Miami athletics.
1: We talked about the individual characteristics, right? That make up a championship locker room. Then we talked about the type of coach, right? That has to have that kind of discipline. Then you have multiple layers of those people in every room, right? So, There's a coach holding you accountable. There's guys with pride. And then the only way you're going to get on the field is by working. There is no room for slacking off. And so you also have to try and build a roster that can foster that kind of competition. And then you have the pieces working together.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, you hear this through and through. Everybody will tell you how tough practice was. And it was. that's the truth. Like, it was that because the guy across from you is probably an All-American too. But, you know, just to throw out a few names... You know, the way Coach Shannon coached the defense, the way he would bench a guy if he was too cool or bench a senior to play a young guy because he wasn't given the, the correct effort. And that kind of permeated throughout the rest of the staff and stud, Coach Hargraves, the linebacker coach. And then if you go on the other side of the ball with Kehoe and Solinger, the way they coach, having the ability to be in that room as a freshman and, you know, hear the, the level of why you're not going to play. And what you need to be doing and be looking at a guy like, man, he's working pretty hard like this guy's. And it's like, yo, bro, you're never going to play here, bro. Okay. You're never going to play here. Saul so would be like, you know, Hey, uh, I'm from Missouri, bro. You got to show me, you know, it was, if you were, if you weren't a thick skin, you weren't, you were not going to make it through the other side, but the other side's great.
1: But just go back to the, you said you walked into the DB room. You were originally a safety who was in that room. The starters, you know, intro Wool was a corner,
2: Sean Taylor, Maurice Sykes, fifth year senior, witty, smart, tough dude, played in Vegas stage, Alfonso Marshall. You had Kelly Jennings, who was who was uh, still uh, was part of the rotation. Young guys like Brandon Merriweather, who was,
1: you know, probably playing a lot in the nickel, helping us out. It was just deep. That's the point, right? The point is it's gotta be deep, or how you're not supposed to see the field. You gotta earn your way on the field.
2: It was so pro in that locker, in that particular room. When I say pro, like, it was like, hey, look, man, you got to learn this stuff. Most sites wasn't necessarily lined up to be like, hey, beast, you know, you need help? You want to stay late? Like if I asked him a question, he would tell me, but he understood that I was a threat and I needed to come in and prove myself. That's it. And before the same as in the pros, like before you're going to kind of extend your hand and kind of show a young guy the ropes, you want to see if it matters to him, you know, like how he's going about his business. And if he's a, Seems like old guy, he's just happy to be here, got the biggest smile on his face, man, got the uniform on, looking good. I'm in the league, or I go, I'm at the university. No, you're just gonna be one of those guys and you're not gonna be in that that circle. And uh it was like that, man. It was there was plenty of guys where you just like you knew you couldn't trust them. They were just, you know, relegated to being either a teamer or five star bus, because you're never gonna step on and play, you know, offense, defense. It's just not gonna happen.
1: When you were recruited, were you recruited as DB,
2: running back, where you just come and play? I was an athlete, and I had the opportunity to, to choose. A lot of it was based on where I was going, but because I wanted to win so badly, I always played both sides of the ball. You know, I want to I play offense, and I want to play defense. And, you know, you when you go to the University of Miami, almost nobody has that luxury of playing both, because we don't need you. As good as you are at whatever you do, we can have you stay fresh on just on offense. And the the person who is as good at you on defense can play defense. Like, it was very much like that. But I think why I was able to, to bounce around and, and always be a guy who could fill the need is because of how I played ball and how I took coaching. And when I came out, I witnessed in the National Championship game, you know, Willis McGahee well on his way to being at least a second pick in the draft because for whatever reason, they still think these quarterbacks are the it, but they're not. When he got that injury in, in the National Championship game, my heart stopped for him, but I also listen to the commentary as they're, they're talking about what this meant for him, what he just risked and where he was for his future, his family, his dreams. I remember distinctively being like, man, I'm going to go play safety. I'm not going to let someone else dictate my future. Because I, when I, when I risked to run the ball, like I'm not looking to run out of bounds. I am not looking to get to the ground and get to the next play. You're going to have to earn the right to tackle me. So, you know, guys coming in late, that was the case a lot uh, when I played running back in high school. But at that moment, I was like, I'm just going to go hit people. So <laughs> I told coach, I said, yeah, I'm just a safety. I wanted to be the next Sean Taylor. I wanted to go out and hurt people and do it on the way to a championship.
1: You, you mentioned Sean Taylor before. Did you know, like, were you aware of him? Like you knew of him or, or like you walked into the locker room at Miami and you said, holy Christ, who is that?
2: I probably knew about Sean more than any other player when I came in. Well, because I had the, the unfortunate privilege of playing against him in high school as a sophomore on his way to a state championship. We actually played at Cobb Stadium on campus, the soccer field. You know, we lost by an extra point. Our kicker was all state, and he missed the PAT to tie the game. They made it through three rounds of the playoffs by a total of seven points the first three games. I mean, they were tough, great coach, great coaching, and they had Sean Taylor. And they had Sean Taylor as a man, you know, he was, you know, very much a monster. And I was 15 years old and it was like, man, that is a dude. But then, you know, he went on to to accomplish so much at the University of Miami. And I was a fan from afar. Like, I've never been in awe of any player. My favorite player of all time was Jerry Rice. You know, I met him the first time and it was very much just a handshake. You know, I'm not in awe of anybody. There isn't a person on the planet that I, I would be like giddy to be like, oh, I can meet that guy. Shake that woman's hand or whoever. But at that age, when I was impressionable, I'll say that Sean, I was literally a fan on the team of him. And he was just that kind of good. And I was like, I want to knock people out like that. I want to get interceptions and make game-changing plays. And I, I aspired to be that. And I got cut short because I ended up moving to fullback. So they kind of like, you know, I'm not even paying attention anymore. But it would have been uh, interesting to see what happens or what would have happened if I had stayed in that DB room for the full season. You know, just the ups and downs, the, the scheme, just everything. I would have been privy to be a part of that particular room. The funny part is I never was in a meeting room with, with Bill or DJ. I didn't really get a chance to to know those guys because I was playing offense. So that relationship was more when they came back and then being like, hey, Vilma, can we sit down and watch some tape? You know, how do you prepare? And then him being... Generous enough to like sit me down and yeah, I'll meet with you. You come here, let's watch film. This is how I do it. And then, okay, okay. You know, wide eyed. And I had this, these resources and I took advantage of them.
1: So can you give me the scouting report on Sean Taylor?
2: So the scouting report on Sean Taylor, Sean Taylor is with these eyeballs. He is the best football player I've ever seen play the game, grace the field, wear shoulder pads and helmet. He just had this competitive spirit. Okay. And I'll give you uh, an example. This is how much of, of a fan I was. Season's over, and we got this star-studded cast of prospects that are going to be drafted in the first round. And then you got the guys that you know, um, like uh, Daryl McClover was going to go in the seventh round. You know, you got guys that are still going to go play in the league that are also training. You got like ten guys that are that are getting ready for the the combine. And this is at a time where everyone stayed home and, and trained with Swayze, and they were working on the five ten five. And of course, you know you got some some dudes out there that can just change direction with the best of them. And you know what? Maybe it wasn't for the combine. It might have just been training, but it was definitely Roscoe, and it was definitely Sean Taylor. Roscoe perishes, you know, his, he's not human. okay? That's the kind of change the direction he has. And he had the fastest five and five, and everyone was going in, and Sean kept telling Swayze, "No, time it again, time it again, time it again. Time it again. Let's do it again. Everyone's going in. Swayze's so like, "Help me! I get him. We get the lift." And, and Sean's just like, "No!" And he literally dove to break the time. And I don't think I don't think he beat Roscoe's time. I think Swayze had to tell him that. He, I think he lived in Miller Lakes, which is probably about a good mile, mile and a half from campus. He would wear a weight vest and run home. You just you embrace those things. He was a warrior, man. And I'm just I'm lucky to see the level of commitment firsthand. So when you, when you train that way and you're doing the things behind the scenes, I mean, it, it, it shows so brightly. And two years later, I'm not necessarily the guy, when I transitioned to linebacker, but you know, my linebacker coach told me, man, look, I don't know why. I just don't know why. I don't know what more you need to do to be the guy. And that's what Coach Hargraves told me. He said, man, sometimes you're just not the dude. And it it didn't make sense. But he didn't have an answer for why I wasn't a starter. And obviously it wasn't his decision. But when given the opportunity to play, the reason when I became the full-time starter, not just in base, Coach Hargraves came to me and said, Yep, Shannon said, if you're gonna play that hard, we gotta leave him on the field. You know, it was the runs from 16th Street on Douglas Road to Pons and back. I clocked it in my car. It was a mile. I would you would see me sprinting down Douglas. It was uh, the 15 flights of stairs I would run with weights on my my quads and come into back into my apartment and you know see the boys sitting there up and down the stairs. The runs on Key Biscayne Beach when no one's out there looking, you know, sneak around the hotel and run in the back to get to the sand. It was running a hill at Tropical Park when no one's there. That's what I mean by, uh, you got to hurt for it. So Sean was very much like that. He was a guy that would lean at the end of the first 110 when we were scheduled for 32. That's why he's, he played like that long, like a few seasons and the way people talk about him, great players. Cortis and Santana, who witnessed it up, up close, the change in his body, you know, in terms of being a 230, 235, you know, 4 4 guy to get down to about 220 and blazing, come out of the post and knocking Terrell Owens out and Ocho Cinco and not caring about the punter in the Pro Bowl. Like, that's how you play. That's how you play.
1: So, speaking of changing your body, did you, so did you grow? Did they move you to linebacker or you grew into a linebacker? I was always a linebacker, but I was in denial. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I came in, and I was about, I was working out like a madman. You know, you're 18 years old, you haven't hit that, that man spurt, you know? I was about 218 before we actually were getting ready to start camp. And Shannon comes up to me and he goes, Hey, listen, I need you at 206. If you're not 206, you'll be too big to play. So, I mean, I was literally not eating. And then to think the was 195 as, you know, as a linebacker recruit, <laughs> but uh, he says, yeah, I need you at 206. So I'm literally starving myself. I got down about 210 and I literally, I couldn't spit out any more weight. I literally couldn't drop any more weight. So then when I got moved to fullback right away, but didn't have to worry about it. I had the shoulder surgery, rehabbing. The next season I was 225 as a redshirt freshman. I played at 225. And then I left at about 2:30, but it was a different type of body, you know, like your lean mass. My lean mass went up. I got bigger, and then I ended up playing the league at about 2:35. So, you know, understanding nutrition and, and being a, a guy who uh, was dialed in in terms of every T and every I, that that's what it takes. You know, nine meals a day, every two hours. You know, measuring, weighing your food, and carrying a book bag to make sure you don't miss a meal. I did it. I really felt like in, in the, the league my game psh, took off when, again, I was hurting for that. Like, I mean, you're, you're making that sacrifice uh, to have this, uh, this professional body that is equipped and, uh, and ready
1: for anything. So that hurt, John, that you talked, I mean, very tangible, right? Very tangible, you're speaking about yourself or speaking about Sean. I feel like that hurt is a very common thread that pushes the great ones. I'm not talking about UM guys. I'm talking about great football player, great athletes. Just
2: or successful people. You know, Will Smith said it the best and I, you know, I I use it a lot. I don't always give him credit for it, but Will Smith said the first thing and the easiest thing to do is to decide, right? Like whatever it is, you have to make a decision. This is what I want to do. And it's just hot air, right? I want to become, you know, Bill Gates. I don't know. That's so easy for anybody to say, okay, it's hot air. But the most important thing that you have to do, and it's the the very next thing is once you... Decide, you have to make the decision on what you're willing to sacrifice for. What are you willing to give up? You're not going to get something without giving up something. And for some people, for the greats, letting go of what they're deciding that they want to do, you're going to have to kill them. There is a threshold that normal people realize is unwise to pass that needle. Greats, keep going. This is, you know, when you have inventions, like things that I, I can't necessarily quantify, I'm sure I can learn it, but I don't know how text messages work. I don't know how I'm talking to you right now based on metal, plastic, and rubber, whatever this laptop thing, you know, I don't know how it works, but it does. And it's somebody who did not stop at, this is pretty cool. I kind of invented this. They just keep pushing that level of what's obtainable. I I use uh, the comparison of the first four-minute mile, right? It was documented. Hey, no human being can run this distance in under four minutes until it happens, until it happens. And then once it happens, everyone does it. Now, a four-minute mile at the Olympic level is nothing. You know, we're 20 seconds probably lowered, and it's insane how fast these guys are now. But for some people, they have to see it. And then for the great, they just keep, Pushing. They just keep pushing. Will Smith said at this in the same segment, he said, he goes, if there's a treadmill and then there's another treadmill, I'm on one, you're on the other. There's one of two things that are happening. Either I'm gonna win or I'm gonna die before I get off this treadmill and you beat me. Like that, that mentality is not necessarily wise, right? That's that threshold I'm talking about. Like no one dethroned me. The game said, John, that's it. Your body can't do it anymore. All the injuries, they came from the miles of beating on my tread. You know, I didn't have an acute injury. Everything I had in the NFL was soft tissue in terms of my lower body injury. I mean, shoulders are just part of uh, getting the job done, you know. (laughs) But a a shoulder never sidelined me. And um, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change how I went about my approach because that was my strongest attribute was I wanted it or felt like I wanted it more than anybody else. And when you talk to your peers or guys on the other side of the ball at the Pro Bowl or just in passing, you know, I just ran a bush ride from the the Saints. He was an offensive lineman, ran into him a few weeks ago, and he was like, man, I hated playing against you.
1: That's the best thing anyone could say, right? That's it.
2: Sean you would say, hey, you get double points, you block Beason And he said he hated it because he knew that I could run, that I could also come in, put my helmet right under his chin and take on a block. But he knew that I wouldn't get tired. He knew that I wouldn't quit, that I would never take a playoff. And when guys know that, you, know, you already got to beat. They know, like, oh, man, because a lot of people, though they say they love the game, they're itching for a moment to kind of relax and chill. That's the one thing that's bad about football. Sometimes you can hide a little bit. You know, you can't hide with your coach because we, re- we can rewind it 11 times and evaluate your own effort. But the co- great coaches that I had, the part that when you're getting graded, we had something called extra effort at University of Miami, and it was very difficult to get. It. I mean, you had to fall down and get back up. You sprint past a dude on your defense. I mean, it was very difficult. But I would fight for that. I wanted it. every single week, I wanted to be the guy that got the extra effort. And... um Richard Smith, he's been coaching over 40 years in the NFL. He's my linebacker coach, old school. Went after a player with the 49ers, a big fight broke out because, you know, two two egos, you know, two alphas, button heads, and he was going after the player. The player was going after him on the sideline during the game. But his criteria was a change of speed. When the ball is snapped, if I see a change of speed, whether you're going from slow to fast, or super fast to not quite as fast, that is a loaf. And I appreciated him coaching me like that. I was, I was up for it. I wanted the I wanted it done that way because you have to think that if if you play 55 to 95 plays in a game, that that one play is the play that determines the outcome. And that's gotta be the mentality.
1: Doing enough of these, it's that mentality, that mindset, that hunger, that emotion, whatever the problem of it package up together. That's that separates the special ones, man, because. It's so influential, you know, to, to be around that greatness. But it, I would say to you, it's not normal to be white, Like, the normal isn't wired that way.
2: No, no. That's why there's so much mediocrity in the world. You know, I mean, I mean, people are just laid up, bathing in mediocrity, feet up, complacent. They don't even understand. They've never set a goal, worked through it, and accomplished it in their life. They're, it's the almost. And then... So it's so much of it that that becomes kind of the new standard that this is like, Oh, this is probably like, this is just about right. Like, this is, this will get me what I want. And then man, if you're on the other side of that and you're a person who's willing to, to push and make the sacrifice, Oh my goodness. You separate yourself so much. You run circles around people. It becomes easy because they just don't have, it just doesn't matter that much in their heart, their conviction, their morals, values, things that they hold true. It does not matter enough for them to hurt that bad for it.
1: Now, I'm going to bring up a name that's not going to mean anything to most people listening to this, except it will to you. But I'm I'm guessing your high school coach falls into the category of some of the disciplinarians, hard asses, accountable personalities that, and his name is Mark Wandolo, Coach G, that I got to be around when he was at Cypress Bay. I was covering high school football, just one of a kind. When you were talking about to some extent, Coughlin or, or Richard Smith or whatever, you were talking about him.
2: Mark gondolo by chance, okay, walked into my life as a coach. He was so far and above qualified to take the job at a two and eight Shaman Abadana where he originally started coaching in 88. So this would have been 16 years prior. Like the fact that he came there and instilled the methodology, okay? I was willing to do the work, but I didn't understand how. Like I wanted to win bad and I was competitive and optimist and whatnot. But I just did what a coach told me to do. I didn't understand that it takes more, that you have to do more, that you have to give more. And Mark Gondolo, any player who's ever been around him is better in life because of it. And I was so fearful of him that I had to write him a letter to talk to him. At the time I was, I was still a quarterback and he was riding me about steps and ball off the index finger, pointing the shoulder. I mean, these little details that had never been, I'd never been coached to do. And it was rough. I'd never got beat down because I was always like the better kid. I just did what the coach said and it was great. And I was like the prodigal son for every coach I've ever had. I never had a guy ride me like that. But I understood then what it took. And he used to say, you can do everything right work extremely hard. Now everything could be favorable, the schedule, your talent around you, home and away, no one gets injured. Everything could be perfect. But if you don't work hard, you're guaranteed not to get what you want. But if you do everything right, it just gives you a chance. And most people don't like those odds. They don't like that Mark Rondolo will tell you 25 plus years of coaching that his best team was a team that lost the state championship. The guys that Bought in the most, the guys who worked the hardest, did it together, should have got a ring, shouldn't have gotten a ring, would beat any other state championship team that he did coach. We didn't get it. Those odds didn't pay off. And that's the one regret I have in my career is like not being a champion. That's all that matters. And him instilling that, the work ethic and pushing us to our limits. I mean, we were basically so dialed that we were brainwashed. And it was a few guys that became the majority of the guys that set the pace, that did more, that always made their time, that made everybody else kind of, the bottom just kind of rise. And I'm successful because I knew him, but because I went through his program. And a lot of people who don't understand what potential is, like when we talk about Shaq Quarterman, they didn't have that person. I had that from birth with my mother, but the coach who propelled me to be who I became and to give me a why and a purpose and to understand sacrifice and commitment and teamwork and leadership was Mark Rondolo.
1: Well said. There's plenty more we could do, but we might have to do, we might have to do round two.
2: Round two, You let Jay, you let me know, man. I will, uh, will gladly uh, will do it. You, you brought me back to a place today that I forgot. You know, I forgot how influential Sean Taylor was on me. And most teammates won't admit that from a ego standpoint. But, I mean, from every aspect of it, I was in awe, for sure. So
1: I appreciate that. I got a couple more pages where there's stuff here. We can get attack and we fill up another episode. That's
2: the beauty of podcasts, man. It, the time flies. But uh, the conversations can get real.
1: Well, yeah, man, you were great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, John Beeson. You did it too. You took us behind the you, man. You lived up to the hype. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. Cocaines.